0: Welcome to Trail and Ultra Running Training. This episode is intended as a part two to the episode I released earlier this week, number 81. But it can also serve on its own if you just want to know about exercise terminology and physiology and stuff about what your body's doing when you're running. In the previous episode, I went into detail about how I coach trail and ultra athletes. But I failed to define a lot of terms. Even more importantly, I failed to clarify what I mean by a lot of terms. Most coaches have different names for different things or the same things, which is incredibly frustrating if you're trying to figure out what you're actually looking to do. So I wanted to go through and define some of my terms and how I was using them in order to help make the last episode more useful. And if you haven't listened to the last episode yet, This is just a reminder, I'm offering a free coaching strategy session to anyone who wants it in celebration of Father's Day. If you want to speak with me about any aspect of your training, just message me, shoot me a text at 505-702-6192 or find me on Facebook or Instagram, and we can dive into anything from running to strength training to hydration to sleep, whatever you want. Just message me and we'll set it up. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Trail and Ultra Running Training Podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you improve your training so you can have more fun out on the trails. We're live. Let's talk training terms or terminology. Uh, This is a follow-up from yesterday's talk about my coaching process because I spent a lot of time talking about things that... I do, and just threw terms out there, like VO2max, and uh, critical velocity, or critical speed, and lactate, and it's possible that you either don't know what they are, or even more importantly, in the coaching industry, we use a lot of these terms to mean subtly different things. So, let's take a second to define them. kind of realized I didn't do that after yesterday, so I wanted to make sure that I covered it so everything was clear. So first, VO2max. And this is the maximum rate at which your body can absorb oxygen during some sort of physical activity. We typically discuss this in something like liters per minute, or from a training perspective, it is often milliliters per kilogram of body mass per minute. And that's a lot more relevant. And this is why you'll often see um, athletes like cyclists really care about their Mass because it really has an effect on their performance metric when it comes to VO two. So, honestly, for a lot of ultra runners, it's not a like exceptionally important metric. It just needs to be good enough. Um, the real test, like if you're going to really test your VO two max, it involves strapping a mask to your face and. Then running at like increasingly faster paces or increasingly greater inclines until you fail, and the incline version tends to be more common, as it's a little simpler in some ways, and it's less stressful on connective tissues. Especially if you have someone who can really book it, you don't have to get them up to 20 miles an hour or whatever Usain Bolt could probably push. We need you just have to like increase the incline. And you're going to see them hit their BO2 max. The only real downside with the incline version is if your cardio is a lot better than your calf strength. Because as you increase your incline, your calves are going to become more and more involved. And we might see a bit of a struggle there. But we'll still get a pretty good measurement of your BO2 max. Now, if we look at more highly trained athletes, or athletes with a longer training history, or just like genetic Anomalies, then you'll see that it's pretty fairly, or it's fairly pinned, like it's high. Um, a lot of these really high endurance athletes have a high VO2 max because they've been training for decades. They also probably genetically had a higher one anyway. Now, in people who haven't been training very long or very hard, most of the stuff you are going to do is going to improve it. Even long, slow endurance runs will improve your VO2 max. We can actually improve it through a couple different pathways in the body, which doesn't really matter, Um, but you're going to see improvement on your VO2max if you're kind of new to training, meaning in in a couple years, and it's not going to need to be all that targeted or directed to get there. Now if we are going to do something like a VO2max interval, they're typically something short, like two to five minutes, really hard, um, with a fairly corresponding rest time of like minimum two minutes. So you'll here are people who train professional athletes and they'll be like maybe four to six minutes on at the very upper end, it's typically like three to five, and then they'll rest two or three minutes. In his book, Jason Coop recommends like three minutes on, three minutes off, it's easy to remember, it's easy to do, it's easy to like accumulate the volume, perfectly fair metric. Right? Shorter races like an 800 meter or a mile or even like a 5k are often limited or controlled by some combination of your VO2max and your ability to sustain muscular power. And as I said, like in more highly trained athletes, sometimes your VO2max is pinned at... um, We often actually see VO2max slowly decline over the careers of very elite professional marathoners, even though they keep winning more and more races and setting better and better personal times. So it might not be that big of a deal, A lot of the stuff we might actually be doing with these VO2 max intervals is training more on the, like, muscular power endurance thing. Your ability to sustain, sustain, like, really high muscular output for two to five minutes. And it doesn't really matter why, like, exactly what we're doing here. Um, Science is often catching up to training mechanisms that have been happening for a long time. It's really nice to know why things happen. It's nice to be able to explain things. But we know these help. And we'll see, like, this matters because these things tend to be your your ceiling, right? So we've we've made an analogy in the past of a house where your, like, height, you standing in the house, is your, like, endurance or aerobic threshold. The ceiling is going to be your, like, lactate threshold. Uh, The ceiling of the attic might be your VO2 max. And then the actual roof might be your, like, muscular power output everything underneath is always limited by the thing above it. So if your VO2 max is too low, then you're not really gonna be able to do much of anything. If your muscular power is too low, you're not really gonna be able to do much of anything. So let's say you wanna run a 50 mile race in less than 10 hours. This requires you to maintain less than a 12 minute mile like the entire time, including all your aid station stops. If you can't run a 12 minute mile, then you're not gonna be able to do that for 10 hours. as Renato Canova says, endurance is all a matter of extension. So if you can't do it at shorter distances to a point, I realize the first 10 to 20 like steps of a 100 meter race are all about acceleration, but if you can't do it shorter distances you're not going to be able to do it at longer distances. So if you can't run a 12 minute mile once you're not going to be able to do it 50 times in a row. Also if you can't run a 10 minute mile you're probably going to be able to struggle, you're probably going to struggle to maintain that 12 for 10 hours either. We want a decent delta between, or, like, difference between your mile pace and your, like, long-distance race pace just because it gives you more breathing room, like, figuratively and literally. Um, We don't want you to have to, like, redline the entire time because you can't. You can't sustain that pace forever, and we'll get to that in a second. Let's be honest, your actual VO2 max doesn't really matter for someone running these, like, really long ultra distances. As long as there's a decent delta between your, like, more top end and your low end, you'll be fine. And what constitutes decent is not an exact science here. Two, like, a 10-minute mile versus 12-minute mile is probably not great. Um, a 6-minute mile is probably more than enough for most people's goals in a 50-miler. Again, what we're likely doing here is more like sustained power training than VO2 max training, but I call them VO2 max intervals because it's shorter and a larger percentage of people will have some idea of what I'm talking about because that's what they're called in some of the biggest training books in the sport, like Coop's book um, or Skiba's book, Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes. The VO2 max interval is a thing and even though we're learning that that might not necessarily be what we're doing it is still a pretty good metric and you're probably still tar- you're still targeting that VO2max space even if you're not necessarily training it or directly improving it so that's what I mean by those I also mentioned critical speed and I'm going to use critical speed and critical velocity interchangeably they're technically not, especially for trail runners like incline and vector matter when we talk about velocity versus speed but for simplicity's sake, we're going to just go with it. That's also why we don't do a lot of science on trail runners, because hills are hard right? To, to measure in different terrain and foot and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, so critical speed is about 90% of your VO2 max. It's about like a half hour race pace, or for someone like a professional runner, it's going to be a 10k pace. And it matters because once you cross over that like critical velocity, you are guaranteeing that you will eventually hit a wall. This is the pace at which your fast-twitch muscle fibers are eventually going to tap out on their ability to deliver oxygen. And you could only be over that pace by like a hair, you are eventually going to see a very linear decline, and you will just hit a wall and have to slow down. This is the pace that like, under this pace, you could very theoretically maintain indefinitely, as long as you stayed fully fueled, hydrated, and like managed internal heat in your muscles. We know that all of that is not possible to do for extended periods of time, but this is what that metric is. Above it, you're going to eventually need to slow down. Below it, if you can theoretically manage everything else, you could go for ages. And because you're using largely like slower twitch muscle fibers here, they're less impeded by oxygen. That's why like being below this pace is sustainable whereas being over it you're like really recruiting a lot of fast with muscle fibers and they don't have that endurance capability as much so that's kind of what that means now like critical velocity and real like top end lactate threshold training tend to look very similar um because like for a lot of more professional athletes your their lactate threshold pace is actually going to be something like their half marathon which, best in the world, would do in sub one hour, and their 10K is going to be sub a half an hour, and you're, you're splitting hairs a little bit between those two. We actually see training in the best in the world. When they train one, they get benefits in the other. They are very related, and the intervals will go anywhere from like 15 to 20 minutes. Um, the pace is going to be pretty similar. Your critical velocity will obviously be a little faster, but. Close to the, they're going to be very close, right? So if we target one, we always, we almost always drag the other along for the ride, and I just call this critical speed training, because it helps delineate it from what I mean by lactate training. Uh, we're targeting anywhere from like a five k to a ten k effort, in order to stimulate like lactate threshold and raise critical speed of an athlete. Um, intervals tend to look like, again, five to twenty minutes long with a one to five minute rest period. Um, and we're just gonna to try to string some volume at that intense pace along and raise those metrics. Now this is, we'll look at like lactate threshold next because that's kind of where we're, we're moving down the house, right, so this is the effort at which your body starts to accumulate lactate at such a rate that it like runs out of control. Cool. If you, lactate is a fuel, it's not bad. Um, I really wish we'd stop talking about lactic acid and in fact when I tend to hear someone talk about lactic acid, I, either think that they don't care or they haven't updated their physiology knowledge since the 80s, right? But for some reason we just like won't correct this. Anyway, in spite of like lactate being a fantastic fuel, and in some cases preferred, it's a really good fuel for your brain, it's a really good fuel for your heart, um, the production of lactate comes with a lot of byproducts, specifically hydrogen ions, and those are what give you that burn. Also, like the myth of the recovery run the following day to move the lactic acid out of the system isn't real. One, we know lactic acid not really a thing in the body, and then two, the hydrogen ion dissipate quickly. What you're experiencing there is DOMS, which is a whole different thing. It's like muscle tears and muscle soreness, and we're not doing the same thing there. Yes, a recovery run can actually help you recover. So can a walk, so can a hike, so can like low-level banded strength movements. You're not working the lactic acid out of the body. It's not what you're doing. Anyway. We can teach the hydrogen ions to dissipate even faster um, by keeping our, like, if we're doing interval work, if we keep our off intervals or back off intervals at a little slightly quicker pace, slow enough that your cardio system can catch up, but fast enough that your muscles are still working, then we can actually teach your body to like process that faster. Anyway, there are a couple spike points for lactate. If you look at a graph, one at the upper end of your aerobic pace, so this is the pace you could theoretically hold forever if you stayed Uh, hydrated and awake Um, and then another one at like lactate threshold which is what we're talking about here and that is often around like 80 to 85 percent vo2 max don't completely quote me on that but it's there we can also hear how that's pretty close to your critical velocity which is why they drag each other together and this tends to be about your 60 minute race pace you'll hear anything from like 45 to 90 that's 60-ish minutes now if we're really looking at pushing up that lactate threshold we can do it efficiently as in like in little time per session, by pushing right about threshold pace for intervals. It's also a pretty big stress on the body. These are hard. Um, they put your body through a lot of, like, muscle tear down, And you can't do a ton of it, maybe a couple of these per week. Um, highest level athletes in the world, maybe a little more, but for most of us it's going to be less. Or you can do work lower in our, like, lactate zone. So if we're going to talk about your aerobic heart rate capping out at, like, 150, and your lactate threshold heart rate being, like, 175, we have 25 beats to, like, work in there, and I'm not a huge proponent of a lot of heart rate, I'll get into that later, but it puts a good metric, right, whereas, like, our VO2 max training, if your max heart rate's, like, 195, your VO2 max work might be, like, 180 to 195, or really, or 188 to, like, 185 to 195, it's a smaller threshold, so, our lactate space is bigger and you can teach the body to use lactate more effectively anywhere in there. Yes, efficiently we will do better, Um, time efficiently we will do better if we are at the higher end, but you can't collect a ton of volume whereas if we do something like more sessions um, more collected volume at the lower end of that lactate threshold or lactate space, then you can just push quite a bit of it. It's not that stressful on the body. Um, the Kenyans do this a lot. The Norwegians do this a lot. They do a ton of it. And it's not often what we call interval training. Um, they often do it more like fartlek style. So they'll like run for 30 minutes. And then over the next 30 minutes, collect 20 minutes at low level lactate work. And then they'll like finish out their their hour and a half, two hour training session. And you know you're in that zone when you're breathing a little heavier, it's a little labored, but you can still speak a full sentence. Steve Magnus used to have runners say, I think he still does, I feel good, I feel great, I can still communicate. I often just have people say I can still speak this full sentence because it's easy to remember. Both of those, depending on how your brain works, will be fine. If you're breathing a little heavier but you can finish one of those sent- phrases or sentences without having to guess for air, you're probably pretty good. And you can do these a few times per week. This is what I will often toss into like long runs. So other stuff I even forgot to mention yesterday, like I'm a heavy proponent of strides, I'm a heavy pr- proponent of hill repeats, and we'll often runs throughout the week will look like 50 to 60 minutes easy with like some stuff at the end. Um, and this stuff will be like 10 accelerations or something, right, and this is, you can toss some of this lactate, low level lactate threshold work into your week fairly frequently. You don't want to overdo it. You still want the large majority of your training to be in this easy zone, but we can push the lactate a little more, especially if we're gonna like do it in a block fashion. Speaking of easy, there's easy running. This is what often is called like zone two training. And this is like 60 to 70% of your heart rate max. Um, It also is a pace for most people where you could have a like mildly uncomfortable conversation. Peter Atiyah has described it as like you can still talk and in no way would it affect your exercise, would your exercise affect the conversation, but you probably wouldn't want to be having that conversation. Now this line is different for different people. I struggle personally with quite a few of the breathing cues because I can't breathe through my nose very well. For those who don't know, I grew up with a deviated septum. I had about 10% of a nasal passage on one side and 30% on the other. It was a really rough bag. Uh, When I was 19, I got surgery to fix that, but they could only fix it about 60%. There's always some drop-off, so I'm about half. So for most people um, who don't have that kind of history, the breathing stuff's a really good target, which brings me to like pace versus effort versus heart rate, etc. Incline greatly affects pace. And while I do like some distance and pacing assessments, it doesn't actually mean we're ever going to use that pace in training if you tend to run a lot more in the mountains. So, incline affects pace, elevation affects pace, hydration, food, like everything will affect your pace. Your easy pace day to day might have like a two minute per mile swing. So. For trail runners especially I don't like to use and that's on flat ground right so like for trail runners especially I don't really use like a ton of pace targets into, unless we're like really targeting specific race stuff so we can use heart rate but it also has a lot of flaws um, a big one being you need to use a chest strap and some people just don't want to buy one um, other people like they're really uncomfortable if you have if you're in a bigger body or you have breasts like a strap right here can be difficult so a wrist strap is just not accurate enough to necessarily be worth it. We can use heart rate to say like, hey you were supposed to run easy and you're at 180, you're not running easy. Like that is night and day. Um, but using a wrist strap to say something like you should be at 140 versus 143 is really difficult. Um, and then heart rate in general for the higher speed stuff is almost useless. By the time there's almost a lag, so by the time, like, it's taken the minute to catch up your heart rate to your effort, um, you only have, like, a minute or two left in that VO2 max interval. So not useful, right? So we can use effort, which is better because it's always there. Forget your heart straight strap, forget whatever. Like, you can still go by effort, and it's adjustable to your terrain and your hydration, etc. That's what we try to get people to do. If you're really new and you don't know what you're looking for, then heart rate can be a good, like, Check right. If you're constantly pushing too hard, this can also be a good check because it's there to tell you, like, hey, your heart rate's at 165. That's definitely not an easy pace. So come on. Um, But otherwise, I just don't use heart rate very much. I'm happy to like set zones with people, and I've done that. But it's just not a thing that I tend to do because it's tough, and it doesn't apply to a lot of people I train. Now, I also mentioned something about camp, which is just trying to push a ton of volume in two to three days, and this is largely. Because it, like, forces you to focus on pretty much nothing but running for a weekend. You're going to run, you're going to refuel, you're going to rehydrate, you're going to sleep, and you're not going to do a lot else. There is not necessarily a lot of, like, physical or physiological benefit to running more than two to three hours. Um, There just isn't. We know this from a lot of testing on physiology. But that doesn't mean there aren't other benefits. Like, one, it can teach your feet to be more durable. Like, if you're not used to being on your feet for five hours, that can actually be a big thing. So there can be a huge strength component to it. Another one, it um, gives you a big psychological boost. If you've never run that far or run that much, saying, I ran 60 miles in three days and wasn't destroyed, I can do this 50 miler. That's a big deal. Like, giving that psychological boost is super helpful. It also forces you to be out there long enough to where like problems are going to arise and you have to solve them. Because I almost promise you that if you haven't done a lot of trail races or a lot of races in general, problems are going to arise and you're going to have to solve them. And the longer you're out there, the more problems have a possibility to arise. And so we might as well do a few of these long training sessions to teach you to solve problems on the fly. It's also really good for dialing in hydration and nutrition. As I said yesterday, like... We should have a sweat test by this point, we should have some, have some basic ideas of your nutrition targets, but they don't necessarily, they're not perfect, and there's a lot of the time like, we'll see breakdowns around like four or five hour mark, so if we have you run for four or five hours, then we might actually get to some of those breakdowns that weren't going to show up in 90 minutes. Now. Most of that's the, the running stuff, just a couple quick terms for strength, like reps are how many repetitions of an exercise you do in a row. Um, sets are a collection of reps with rest in between. So I'll program something like 3 sets of 8 to 12 movement with 45 to 60 seconds of rest in between. And there's ranges, because pace might adjust in running, and your reps might adjust day to day for, like, squats. So. We're looking for you to hit a particular effort in that range. Um, you're also just never, like, you're never really looking to go to failure with strength. It's not safe. At most, you want to go until you experience, like, a slight breakdown in form. So if we're looking at a bench press and everything's perfectly packed and shoulders deviate a little bit, like, that's as far as you'd go. Past that, you are no longer getting the intended benefit, and you're just risking a lot of injury. So we'd go close to form breakdown, maybe a rep or two short. Now, as far as phases, like heavy strength, we'll target like one to, traditionally one to six, sometimes it's one to eight Um, reps. For most people, I target like two to five sets of three to six reps, like a one to two minute rest in between. I don't think like singles or doubles, like one or two reps of an exercise at a time, help most people. They can be helpful if, you're trying to push PRs, if you're trying to push weight, if you're trying to lift heavy, um, they're almost necessary if you want to be a power lifter, but they're not helpful for most of us. So I just don't tend to program singles and doubles. Now if you do this right, it is, this is a big stress in your central nervous system this whole phase, which is why you like don't pair it with VO2 max intervals, or your volume peak, like you do this kind of earlier, so you have enough time to recover before you race and you don't crap out from CNS or central nervous system fatigue. Now more runners probably need to do more of this strength work. Most people I know in the running space do like light weight for much higher repetition and they completely negate this side. If we look at a side benefit of heavy strength work it is that your bones actually get stronger. So people who lift really heavy actually have bigger, thicker, stronger bones and with the amount of stress fractures and stuff in runners, like that can actually be really positive, right? So a short period, once or twice a year, of a heavy strength phase can be helpful. Now if you're like two months out from a race and you're cranking volume or when you're in the middle of like the worst speed work of your life, not the time, right? So don't just add it because you think it's a good idea, plan it into your year, it needs to fit. Now, we also have like hypertrophy, which just means muscle growth, and this is making your muscles bigger. All other things equal, a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle. Rarely are all the other things equal, but still a little size helps. Now I realize most people don't want to get bulky, but to that I just say like try to lift enough to get bulky, especially if you're balancing it with running. You probably won't. Um, I have above average muscle, above average muscle building genes, and I'm, it still takes me a few hours per week in the gym and like a big focus on food if I'm going to put on size. And then if you are, if you learn that you are one of the like hyper responders, you just lift less like, oh, I'm getting too big. Great. Stop lifting um, or target something different. Many runners are so scared of getting big that they do themselves a disservice And Cut their strength training and then they get injured. So try it. You're not going to get big and if you do stop Um, For this we target like two to four sets of like eight to twelve reps with 45 to 60 second rest periods Now the biggest thing for hypertrophy is actually overall volume, which we're not going to go into much You can build big muscles with much lighter weight. It's just not time efficient I could curl a 40 pound dumbbell ten times or I could curl a five pound dumbbell 200 times. Um, it's just faster, right? So there we go. And then there's finally the pump. Um, and this is a like full of blood or skin type feeling that your muscles get when you do higher repetitions. If you've ever climbed a really steep mountain face, I guarantee you felt a pump in your calves. If you've ever gone rock climbing, you've almost certainly got a pump in your forearms. Like that's what the pump is. Some people chase this. Um, I personally hate it. I just know it's valuable. So when I try to tell people to like do the heavier strength training, even though they're not a big fan of it for short periods of time, this is the same. This is mine, right? Like I do the pump target occasionally um, short periods of time. I don't enjoy it. So I don't spend a lot of time in it because if I had to do this a lot, I just wouldn't lift. So I get it, but it's good for muscle connection and I can actually increase blood flow to the muscle over time, which is really beneficial for health and endurance and everything, right? So this this is a phase that's worthwhile now for all of these phases you want to get close to well I forgot like I, I don't know if I said this it's like two to three sets of a lower weight higher rep i.e like 15 to 20 and it's a small like 30 to 45 second rest period so you're almost supersetting stuff together uh, which means that you're doing like one exercise on back of another and that's actually another way you can target the pump but that's more than I'm going to get into right now now for all of these phases, you, again, you want to get close to form failure, so you will have to adjust the weight accordingly. If I'm going to get f- close to form failure with 3 reps of the squat, it needs to be a lot heavier than if I'm going to get close to form failure with 20 reps of the squat. If I'm going to do something that's going to really target my quads, like a heels elevated barbell squat. If I'm going to do 2 or 3 reps of that, that might be in a hundred, couple hundred pound range. Where if I'm going to do 20 reps of that, it might be like 95 pounds. So it's going to be a significant factor or delta there, right? Now, that's kind of all the terminology I really wanted to discuss, all the running and the strength stuff. Um, hopefully that helps with the thing I did yesterday because I realized I just threw a ton at you. And if I miss something you'd like me to discuss, let me know and I'll do it. I'm happy to do this as much as I have time for. So if you didn't listen to the other podcast first, um, probably do that. That's why I'm doing this one. And also, I'm offering er, live um, whatever you're watching this on. Um, but I'm also offering a free coaching consultation. Today is National Runners' Day, which is actually what spurred me to offer this early, earlier than intended. I was gonna start this this weekend. But this is a like Father's Day promotion. Um, my dad is the reason I do what I do. And he's not around anymore. And so to honor him in spirit, I'm doing a free coaching consult and that's available to June 18th. Yep, June 18th. So, talk about your current programming, what shifts you might wanna make, anything like, I don't care how you get in touch with me, drop a comment, Um, hit me up through Messenger, hit me up through an IG DM. You can text me through uh, 505 702 6192. I don't care. Message me, we'll set it up. Drop a comment, we'll set it up. I hope this was helpful and I hope to hear from you and I'll be back later this week. Have it going. Thank you for listening to the Trail and Ultra Running Training podcast. Honestly, I'm still surprised and honored that anybody wants to hear what I have to say, so thank you. To be clear, not a doctor, nor a registered dietitian, or any other kind of medical professional. I'm a personal trainer, a nutrition coach, and a running coach, and I have a passion for training trail runners. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional making any changes to your training or nutrition program. If you enjoyed the podcast or found it helpful, please take a second to leave a rating or review. I'd really appreciate it. Or you could just share it with someone for whom you think it might be helpful. I make these kinds of things in order to provide more quality, free resources to people. So the more people who hear it, the better. If you want more of this information, please head to The Trail, an ultra running training group on Facebook, where we discuss all aspects of training so you can have more fun doing the sport that you love.